It's been an exciting weekend. We got some rain, and for that we're grateful. At least it came in some places, and we thank God for that. We pray for our friends in Florida and the terrible distress through which they're passing, and we pray that they'll feel some rain and some relief from those fires. I hope you got to see uh, last night on uh, public television uh, the concert on American freedom and liberty from the Capitol in Washington. It was simply fantastic. Uh, Martha and I were over at uh, Steve's house, and Avery and Megan, uh, our granddaughters, we all watched it at 7 o'clock, and it came back on at 9.30, and, uh, and uh, we watched it again. It was just simply magnificent. Steve made an interesting comment while we were watching it. He said, you know, I suppose that this is the first time in history when anyone made a holiday out of starting a war. All the holidays generally were about the ending of war. Armistice Day and World War I, VE Day, World War II, VJ Day, World War II, we celebrated the conclusion. But here we celebrate, celebrate a declaration of independence, starting a war. The courage to say we believe that freedom is a divine gift and that all men are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, they wrote better than they practiced, like we nearly always do. For you see, freedom and liberty in America and anywhere in the world is always a living thing. It is always needing to be redefined and re-explained and expanded. But it is the dream that counts and the implementation of that dream into our actions that makes the world better, progressively, hopefully better, because of the bright light of freedom which they lighted that day, July the 4th, 1776. Tommy sang about the Statue of Liberty. Emma Lazarus, a Jewish woman whom many of the early immigrants to America in those first days were Jewish people and Italians and Irish. But she wrote a marvelous poem, and the final stanza of that poem is inscribed at the base of the Statue of Liberty. I know you've heard it. I refreshed my memory on it uh, yesterday. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. Send these, the homeless and the tempest tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door. Marvelous words. May that principle continue as a part of America's legacy to the world of freedom. I believe that the source of that freedom and that desire for freedom was twofold among our founding fathers. One was biblical, the biblical precedent of freedom, dating back thousands of years to the time 
and even before this, but in a very epical way, the time in which Moses stood before Pharaoh and said, let my people go. Let my people be free. Freedom. Liberty. It was reinforced by the person and the ministry and the life of Jesus Christ. That inspiration was one of the fires that lighted the torch of freedom in Philadelphia on July the 4th, 1776. The other was the philosophy of enlightenment, which was prevalent in the 18th century. For many of those were motivated by that. Others were motivated by their Christian experience. But I believe that Jesus Christ himself, as Tommy just sang so beautifully, the ultimate source of freedom and liberty is Jesus Christ. As many of you know, I preached behind the Iron Curtain 15 times during the days of communism. There were people there who were not politically free. They were not politically free. They were put in prison because because of their faith. They were punished because of their faith. They were deprived of jobs because of their faith. The children of parents were not allowed to go to school beyond elementary age grades because of the occupation of their parents. There was all kinds of persecution going on. But there were people in, the, in those days dominated by politics but who were free because of their love for Jesus Christ. And some of the most ebullient, positive, victorious Christians I've ever met, I met in the countries of Eastern Europe during the days of communism. You can have a sense of freedom even in the middle of political despotism. And conversely, you can live in a land of liberty. You can live in a land of freedom and still be a slave. A slave. This is what Paul writes about in the fifth chapter of the book of Galatians. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. You are trying to be justified by law. You have been alienated from Christ. Did you hear that? You who are trying to be justified by law, by righteous works, by religious activities, as noble and as fine as they may be, If you're expecting to be justified by those acts of works, religious and otherwise, you have alienated yourself from Christ. The only thing that counts, God inspired Paul to write, is faith expressing itself through love. You, my brothers, were called to be free, whether you live in a land of despotism or freedom. Whether you live under a dictatorship or a democracy, you are, you are called to be free, to be free in Christ, which is the ultimate freedom. But do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you and I try to justify ourselves by law, which we cannot do, It's impossible to do it because we'd have to be perfect to do that. The Jews in their day had a religious system that set up a bunch of laws. They had 613 laws. 
613 laws. 365 of them were negative. 248 of them were positive. 613 laws. You couldn't even learn all of the laws, let alone obey all of the laws. But here were people in Jesus' day trying to justify themselves by living up to all 613 of those laws. And they couldn't do it and they wouldn't do it. And they were not, uh, not able to do it. None of us are. It can never be done. If it could be done, Jesus Christ died in vain. If I could save myself by my works, the cross was the biggest mistake that God ever made. If we could save ourselves, Jesus did not need to die. So if you try to justify yourself, we try to save ourselves by the law, by obeying the law, by being law-abiding. All of those things are noble and worthy, but we are not saved by that. We are saved not by religious law, not by religious acts. We're saved by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. Grace. When a person is saved by grace, what do they do? They just throw themselves and their sin, their failure, their accomplishments. They throw everything upon Christ and claim the promise. If the Son, therefore, shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Augustine, one of the great saints of the church back in the second century, said, Love God with all of your heart and do what you want to. Love God with all of your heart and do what you want to. That sounds risky, doesn't it? Not at all. If you really love God with all of your heart, he'll change your desires. If you really love God with all of your heart, he'll change your motives. When we're really motivated by the love of God, we're free. Free to sin? No, because we don't want to. Oh, we will because we're sinful by nature. But we're forgiven of that sin. We're forgiven because of his grace and love. And we admit to the fact that, Lord, I'm giving my heart to you. I'm giving my life to you. I'm throwing myself upon your grace. But the sinful nature is still with me. And I thank you for your constant cleansing of me and your grace that's greater than all of my sin. You see, grace and law are mutually exclusive they are mutually exclusive. They just do not go together. They are like oil and water. They do not mix. Paul wrote again in the second, uh, in Second Corinthians, the fifth chapter, for Christ's love compels us. King James says, "We the love of Christ constrains us." That's an unfortunate translation of what the word actually means. The word that Paul used there, that God inspired Paul to use in the Greek language is, the love of Christ impels me. Not constrains me, not binds me, not ties me up. The love of Christ impels me, motivates me to do that which is pleasing to God. The great passion in Paul's life, the great motivation in Paul's life was not his love for Christ, it was Christ's love for him. That was what captured him. That was what motivated him. It was not the fact that he loved the Lord. It was the fact that he realized that God loved him. A man who in the name of the law had killed Christians. Who was breathing out threatenings and slaughterings, according to the scripture, against people who were Christians. And it was the great love of God that captured his heart and mind 
And he gave his life to share that word with the world. For Christ's love impels us. Therefore, he writes, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. It's not external coercion. It is internal motivation. Well, my automobile is about to run out of gas and I pull into the service station. What do I do? Do I get out and uh, take the gasoline handle there on the pump and I put gasoline all over the top of my car? I just put gasoline all over the top of my car? And if you're crazy enough, you can raise the hood and put gasoline all over that hot engine in there and you won't be with us a long time, but you'll, you will... You will be uh, an illustration in a sermon someday. You, you take that gasoline and you put it all over your automobile and you get in your car and you're not going to go anywhere. What do you have to do? You have to put the gasoline in your car. The power needs to be inside of you and it is then ignited by the spark plugs of the Holy Spirit and suddenly you're able to move out on the expressways of life to do things in the Lord's name for other people because love is the fulfillment of the law and if you love one another, you serve one another. And that's how it happens. It doesn't happen by external coercion. It happens because of divine internal combustion moving us. By his power in us. I know people, and I, I read uh, articles or letters written to editors. People saying, well, uh, God is a God of judgment. God is punishing. God is condemning. Um, and they see God that way. I remember talking to a, a woman in the hospital many, many years ago. And I was talking to her about the Lord being with her and helping her. And she said this. She said, you know, Buckner, when I pray, uh, I only pray to Jesus. I never mention the name God because she said, I believe that God is angry at me. I believe I can approach Jesus. And so she said, I, 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 never, I never conceive of God as being loving and caring, and I only pray in the name of Jesus. And I tried to help her see that what Jesus said, said, he that has seen me has seen God. Uh, I am the Father and I are one. We're not separate. Jesus did not come to make God a Christian. He's always been love. That's the nature of God. The Bible tells us God is love. It's not something he does as a hobby. It's something he is as his intrinsic nature. God is love. God is love. And that great verse of scripture that we all know and all can quote, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's not a verse of scripture about Jesus. It's about God. God is the one for God so loved that he gave his only begotten son. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God loves you. 
That was the great compelling thing in the life of Paul. And it can be in your life and in mine. Oh, yes, I sang my Jesus, I love thee. But the only reason I can sing that is because he first loved me. It began with him. God loves us. You say, well, that's not so much, that's not true necessarily in the Old Testament. Well, let me read you a verse of Scripture from the Old Testament. You get hints of it in the Old Testament. They would have gotten more of it if they'd been open to the revelations of God. But he was having to bring them along like little children progressively to understand his nature. And so here from Isaiah 49, 15, and 16, let me read you a passage of Scripture. Can a mother forget her baby at her breast and have no compassion for the child she has born? Though she may forget, I will not forget forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. George Adam Smith is considered the greatest commentator, scholar regarding the book of Isaiah to ever live, George Adam Smith. And he said that verse of scripture, I told this story 15 years ago, and I'm going to share it with you again. He says that word engraved in the Hebrew means tattooed. Tattooed. God has tattooed his name upon our name, upon his hands. God has tattooed your name upon his hands. Well, I wanted to find out more about tattoos, and so 15 years ago when Martha and I were in Honolulu, I saw an ad in the paper about a tattoo parlor. And I'd been in a tattoo parlor dozens of times. I'd never gotten a tattoo. But when I was in the Marine Corps, we'd go on Liberty. When I was at Camp Lejeune in North Carolina, I'd go on Liberty in Jacksonville, North Carolina. And I don't know whether you were in Jacksonville in North Carolina in the 40s or not, but there wasn't much there. There wasn't any place to go, anything to do, but they had about 20 or 30 tattoo parlors or shops up and down the streets there. And so we'd go in there and just stand there and watch people get tattoos. I can tell you how boring life was in Jacksonville. One of the most exciting things you could do is go and watch somebody get a tattoo. And uh, the man said once in one of those places, he said, we were talking to him about it. Uh, we asked, what a man get tattoos. What, what do they have tattooed on their body most often? He said, most often people will tattoo on their body something or someone they love. Somebody or something. Some would get that Marine Corps bulldog on there. It says USMC, but others would get a name on tattoo. Somebody they love, something they love. God loved you so much, he got his, your name tattooed on the palms of his hands. Well, I'd seen tattoos, uh, gone to tattoo parlors in, in uh, California and then in Honolulu in the Pacific. And I wanted to, after I'd studied this about George Adam Smith saying that about tattoos, I decided to find out something about it. And I said, Martha, would you like to go to a tattoo parlor? <laughs> she looked at me like I'd lost her, my, my mind. I said, it's, it's not anything bad. Everything's going to be okay and nice. Come go along. She said, Buckner, you've lost it. I said, I have a question I want to ask the operator of the tattoo parlor. And so she reluctantly went. Well, we went in there, and the woman was there, uh, the operator there, giving a, a tattoo to a, to a sailor who was on liberty. 
we sat there. And after a few moments, uh, when, the, when she'd finished, I said, I would like to, I'd like to ask you some questions about tattoos, if you don't mind. And, and I told her who I was. I gave her my card and told her I was a preacher, and that frightened her terribly. I, she, I said, no, look, don't, don't be afraid. I've been around this all, well, you know, three or four years of my life when I was in the Marine Corps. I, I'm not intimidated by this. I'm not here to preach to you. I, I'm here because I want to ask you a question about tattoos. And uh, I wanted to find out whether or not tattoos could be erased. She said, well, they can, uh, but they always leave a scar in, in, in some degree. Uh, discoloration of the skin or a scar depends upon how they are how they're removed. And I said, you know, the reason I want to ask you this question is because of a verse of scripture in the Bible. Well, she looked at me sort of strangely for a moment. A very attractive girl. Uh, she had tattoos all over her. Well, all over what I could see. I didn't see <laughs> Couldn't see everything, but uh, she, she, she was dressed uh, very cool. And uh, she had tattoos everywhere I could see. And she was from uh, Norway or Sweden, Scandinavian. And, uh, and I read of this verse of scripture that God will tattoo our names upon the palms of his hands. And I wanted to find out some things about tattoos. And I told you, I asked about whether they could be erased or not. And then I said, what is the most painful part of the body to tattoo? Well, I naturally thought that uh, probably it would be the uh, face or the privates. And she said, no, the most painful parts of the body to be tattooed are the palms of the hands and the top of the feet. Suddenly I saw what I'd never seen or thought of before. When they nailed him to the cross, they drove nails through his hands and through his feet. The most painful part of his body Fulfilling the scripture in Isaiah, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes, by his scars, we are healed. He was not tattooed with an antiseptic needle. He was tattooed with nails to get my name and your name on the palm of his hands. A couple of words about it. You ever heard the phrase, well, man, I know that like the palm of my hand. I know that like the palm of my hand. God knows me like the palm of his hand. He knows everything about me and loves me and has still tattooed his name on my hand. God knows us. He wants us. And he washes us. He washes us. Picture God washing his hands. He will never wash his hands of you. He will wash you in his hands. He cleans us up day by day, even hour by hour, even moment by moment. 
He is constantly, progressively forgiving us and cleansing us of our sins. And he can't forget us. He doesn't want to forget us. He's got the whole world in his hands. But more personal than that, he's got your name tattooed on the palm. The palms, it says plural, of his hands, both hands. You say, well, he must have big hands. Well, he does. I'll never forget riding along when our oldest granddaughter, Avery, was about five, four or five. I remember right where I was coming down 410, right in front of uh, North Star Mall. And Martha's in the back seat with little Megan. I was in the front with Avery before we had the airbag so she could ride in the front. Anyway, I said, uh, we're talking about Sunday school and church and all. And I said, uh, Avery, what do you think? What do you think Jesus is like? And she said, uh, oh, he wears real bright clothes. And said, he's got great big huge hands because he has to hold everything. Has to hold all the buildings and all the cars and everything she could see, you know. Has to hold everything in his hands. And every time you see him, he's smiling. And every time he sees you, he tells you that he loves you. I never heard a better description of Jesus than that. Got big hands. Big enough to tattoo billions of names upon his hands. Big enough to hold the whole world and to hold your heart. He sets you free because you're his. His now, his tomorrow, and his forever. Thanks be to God. It is for freedom that Christ has set us ultimately free. This could be your day of in the declaration of independence. This could be your day of a new life, a new way, a new direction, a new leader in your life. This can be a day for you that will make a difference both in time and in eternity forever and ever. Would you trust him today? And the moment you say in your heart that you trust him, he starts tattooing your name on his hand. Jesus said in the 10th chapter of the Gospel of John, I hold you in the palm of my hand and no one can pluck you out of my hand and I am being held in my Father's hand and no one can pluck you out of my Father's hands. You hear that? You can't be lost forever if your name is written in the palm of his hand. Trust him today and it will be. Accept him today and your name will be tattooed there. I'll be here to greet you. You come to join this church if God is so leading you. We welcome you with open arms and open hearts. We welcome you to a church that's committed to grace and love and faith. 
we invite you to come. For God is love. Let's stand, let's sing together.